This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Religious Refugees, Deconstructing Towards Spiritual and Emotional Healing. Have you been questioning your faith and spiritual beliefs while leaving the familiarity of your religious homeland? Have you been negatively affected by toxic religion, knowing in your heart of hearts there must be a more liberating spiritual way? Have you experienced loneliness, isolation, and fear of rejection from religious others just because you are a more inclusive, creative, and expansive person? Join the legion of others on the road to healing and self-discovery and let Dr. Mark Karras' book, Religious Refugees, be your guide. What's up, friends? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Happy freaking New Year 2023. Here we are. I want to also say a special hello to any new listeners, especially if you're coming over from one of the podcasts over on the Choircast Network, because I'm sure you heard in this intro before my voice took over. We are now part of the Choircast Podcast Network, which is so cool. I hope it will give our usual regular audience some new podcasts to check out. And if you're coming from one of the podcasts on that network, I hope this podcast is helpful helpful for you in your faith journey. On this episode of the podcast, we are kicking 2023 off in a big way. I brought on Bradley Onishi, who wrote the book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Woo! This is an interview, my friends. We are starting off strong in 2023. I should also mention that Brad is one of the hosts of the Straight White American Jesus podcast. I'm telling you, I like Brad. Brad and I had an amazing conversation Brad knows what he is talking about. He's a scholar. He also grew up in the evangelical culture. He was radicalized like how many of us were as a teenager. This is such a helpful conversation to further understand Christian nationalism, why the obsession with Russia, all of that and more is explained in this episode. So I hope you enjoy it. That being said, a sincere thank you to everyone who listens to the show. It means the world to us. If you don't know, we are, as an organization, a nonprofit community. Okay, we do more than just podcasting. We have a private Facebook community. We do theology Zoom groups. We do Instagram stuff, TikTok stuff, Twitter stuff. We do a lot. So because of that, we are completely donor-funded. That's how we're able to do all this work with no paywalls. There's no Patreon account for the New Evangelicals. There's no secret episode behind a paywall. People donate. We're able to, able to do this work full time and free for the community. So if you want to help us in that work by donating, you can click on the link in our show notes and make a donation. Of course, all donations made in the U.S. are tax deductible. All right, friends. Without further ado, here's my episode with Brad Onishi. I hope you enjoy it. Talk to you all next time. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap, and the sound of me not doing dishes and the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. Sweet. Well, I um, I don't know how to 
to phrase this. I'm not going to say that we saved the best for last in 2022, but I will say I, I, this has been a very anticipated conversation for me. So Dr. Bradley Onishi, that's who I have on the podcast. You wrote a book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. I feel honored you gave me what's called the advanced reading copy. <laughs> so I got an early copy of this. And, and I, honestly, I have two kids under three. It's hard to find time to read. And I blew through this thing in like a week, which for me is impressive. So oh, great book. And thank you for being here, Brad. It means the world to have you on. Uh, well, just thanks for reading the book. I, I also have a uh, young, young kid, so I know it's finding, you know, any time to sit down in, in a quiet room to read is, is a lot. So it, it means a lot to me. You read the book and thanks for having me. Absolutely. I think I first heard of your work through your podcast, Straight White American Jesus, um, which I will say, you know, I, I want to give that a plug because you're currently doing this amazing series with, I'm sorry, what's the gentleman's name? Uh, Matthew um, Taylor. Yes. Really unpacking the new apostolic reformation, how it ties into January 6th. And honestly, friends, I like to think that as an amateur, I'm pretty plugged into these spaces and there was so much detail um, that, that, that was presented in that series that it's worth anyone anyone's time to listen to. It's so good. Well, I'll just give you a little teaser. Um, January 2nd, uh, we are uh, releasing the final episode and we're going to be discussing uh, previously unknown uh, coordination between the Trump White House and New Apostolic Reformation Apostles right before J6, right before J6. Like we're talking uh, New Apostolic Reformation Apostles at the White House in the days before J6. Um, And yeah, so stay tuned. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Even my wife who is like, listen, I wish I had time to think about this stuff, but I don't. So just leave me alone. She was into the podcast and that says something. So (laughs) Um, I do want to start here before we dig into some of the more meat and potatoes here. I always like asking my guests, you know, who they are. Brad, what's your background? I mean, you wrote a book on Christian nationalism. Did you grow up in evangelical spaces? Were you a part of them at one point? Give me some of the context here. So I I grew up in Southern California, Um, Japanese American dad from Hawaii, white mom from Tennessee, non-religious household. So uh, both of them weren't, mom was nominally Christian, dad was nominally Buddhist, but didn't grow up really religious. By 14, I was kind of getting in trouble, Um, drug, sex, rock and roll, and suspended from school and all that kind of stuff. And uh, had a girlfriend in eighth grade invite me to Wednesday night Bible study. And I was was like, look, this is perfect because mom is going to say yes, because it's church. And she's going to think it's going to like get me on the right track. And then I'm going to see my girlfriend, which I never get to do on a weeknight. And we can like sneak away and go make out and not have to (laughs) listen to Ned Flanders talk about the Bible or whatever. And um, the exact opposite happened. I met these, as you can imagine, Southern California, mega church. I met these like leaders with tattoos and who played the guitar and they were very into MXPX and into (laughs) all that business. And so um, I I converted extremely. I mean, that my girlfriend dumped me, but I I just became this like... (laughs) Uh, Jesus freak in every sense of the word. So I was proselytizing outside of movie theaters, evangelizing at, at the beach boardwalk. Um, at my high school, I led a Bible study at lunch. So I would just sit on a bench and people would come and hang and we'd go through the book of John or whatever. Um, some of you remember see you at the pole, uh, once a year I did see you at the pole every Friday. So I just would stand there by myself and pray, uh, for the country. So I was that kind of strange little guy. And uh, by the time I was 20, I was a full-time ministry. I was married 
and I was uh, finishing up at Azusa Pacific, which is a Christian college. So anyway, by the time I'm 20, I'm 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 a full time pastor, and then by the time I'm 23, 24, I've gone to seminary for a couple of years. I've been reading everything I can get my hands on and I'm not, I'm totally disillusioned and not sure I believe in God, much less the evangelical God, but I'm still in ministry. So I, I escaped to England to do graduate school. And that's kind of where I got on the path I am now. I'm still a scholar of religion. I Religion still what I do professionally, but I, I obviously do it from a much different perspective now. You know, I, I resonate a lot with that kind of radicalized teenage approach. I mean, I had the Rock for Life t-shirt, the abortion is murder in black and white. I would skate around my town and and wear it boldly. Um, I, I was one of those people who would pray at my, at my flagpole every week with the pastor. So I, I, I understand that. And I also understand the mentality of like, this is radical. This is countercultural. Uh, we're doing something big, bigger than myself, which I think is what can make these spaces so attractive, right? Is that it's about something that you feel like you're a part of something that just isn't about you anymore. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it is radical in a lot of ways. Unfortunately, I think as we're discovering, maybe not in the healthiest ways, but certainly at 15, you don't know any better. And uh, rock and roll music and, you know, countercultural living as a punk rocker, Sign me up. So I, I get that. For you, I'm just kind of curious, then we'll kind of hop into more of the work you do now. What was, was it like a string of things or was it just a, a theological moment where you just started saying, I don't know if, if this is it. What was that like for you? So there's, I'll give a, a theological example and a, a political example. You know, I went to a Christian college and one of the weird things about Christian colleges is like the theology departments are usually the most liberal places. Uh, it's weird. So I, I, I get in there and I take a class on the book of Exodus and Deuteron- and then uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And the professor basically goes through how archaeologically it just doesn't make sense, the Exodus, right? And there's really very little chance that a million Israelites just walked on out of uh, Egypt. And so I went to his office hours and I was like, so you're telling me, buddy, that you don't believe this happened the way the text says it happens, but you still believe this is the inspired word of God? And he was like, totally. And at that point, there was this intellectual like click of like, wait a minute, you can still believe in the Bible but you don't have to like think that there was a million Israelites leaving Egypt. And so, and then I just started thinking through all the ramifications. So that's when I was like, I'm going to read all the theology, all the philosophy, all the biblical studies I can, because this is awesome. Well, you know, you keep going down that road, you're going to get to a place where your understanding of the Bible changes so dramatically that you're no longer uh, an evangelical, so to speak. That's one. Two, there was this election. A lot of you are too young to remember this, but old man, me, uh, George W. Bush versus Al Gore. And I remember telling people at my church, like I was, it was like my first presidential election I could vote in. And I was like, I'm going to vote for, uh, I'm going to vote for George W. Bush, you know? Um, oh, actually, no, it wasn't Gore. It was Kerry. It was John Kerry. And I was like, I'm going to vote for, uh, John Kerry. Right. And they were like, well, you can, if you want, I was like, I think it lines up more with the gospel. And they were like, look, that's fine. You can think that more poor people will get food or more um, uh, unhoused people might get help. That's, you know, we can talk about all the things you want to talk about, but you're voting for the murder of millions of babies. So you want to do that? You decide. And I got in the voting booth and I was just like shaking because I, mm-hmm. I wanted to vote. I was determined to vote for John Kerry. But every time I tried, I was like, I'm voting to kill little children. Yeah. And after the, that kind of like thinking, I just thought this is too simple. How can we reduce the most important questions of political 
and human life to like either or. It cannot be that simple. And again, once I got to grad school in England and I was away from church and I was away from all that, and I had the the space to really just unfold my intellectual life, it it all kind of went from there. Hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. I think a lot of people in our spaces are certainly in their own place of kind of realizing that life is more complicated than these black and white binaries. um, And that the worlds that we come from painted everything in black and white binaries um, of either you're you're on God's side, which is very Christian nationalist language, or you're on uh, Satan's side, as I heard a lot of at my time at America Fest. And, you know, the world's just complicated. Uh, last question that I have about this and we'll move on. On a personal level, I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, do you, would you consider yourself someone in the Christian space somewhere? Or you're just kind of like, nah, that's not really my thing. I just study this on more like an academic level. I'm fascinated by it. Or does it inform like your spiritual practices at all? What's it like for you? Yeah. These days I, I don't think, I mean, I don't participate in a Christian community. Um, mm. But on the other hand, I, you know, I, I, I'm with students every semester teaching uh, things about Jesus or things about the history of Christianity. And what I will say is that I always continue to learn. One of the, one of the things that I have uh, developed in my academic life and my personal life is that I am not an ex-evangelical who is anti-religion. And I know that for some people, that's that, that maybe the stance they need to take to protect themselves just because they yeah. feel like it, it's hurtful in any form, but I'm not. And so I, the, my approach has been like, I I don't just participate in Christian community anymore, but like there are moments when I learn a lot from Gregory of Nyssa. I've learned a lot from Meister Eckhart. I've learned a lot from, um, William Penn or, um, or, uh, you know, Simone Weil, Right. And so I think for me, I'll always want to learn from people who have, um, done their best to ask about the sacrality of, of, uh, human life and existence. And so, um, some of my best friends and best interlocutors and people I admire the most are, um, are Christian people. Like when I lived, I I, I got a degree from the Institut Catholique in Paris, Catholic school. And when I was there, I lived in the monastery. So I'd go down every day, eat breakfast with the monks and the priests and the seminarians and hang out. And, um, it was awesome. So that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you said that. I think it's helpful for people. And again, you know, I, I like you said earlier, and I want to also agree that for some people, right, where they're at, maybe for their own safety because of their own trauma and legitimate abuse that's happened to them, they have to be able to say religion is just harmful. I, I totally get that. I think there are also a lot of people who, as they keep walking up those stairs out of that fundamentalist basement, go, you know, like it's complicated. So I'm not sure if I'm ready just to do do another what they might call fundamentalist move of, well, it's all bad, right? If it was yep. all good, now it's all bad. So I, I appreciate that. I, I think the nuances is, is where is where not only the fun is, but also the the wonder of life and complexity is. Yep. So I have to ask then, what got you interested? I mean, you're in the spaces I exist in, you're known as one of the main people in academic world uh, and in the scholarly world, but also in the podcast world who really tracks Christian nationalism. What got you in? Like, what was the passion point for you where Christian nationalism became the thing? Well, I so I, I, you know, I I deconstructed in 2006 or so. So it's been a long time. But I, I think it really and and in the years right after that, I studied everything I could study when it came to the Christian tradition. I studied, you know, I wrote a dissertation on medieval mysticism. I studied philosophy of religion in the 20th century. I, whatever, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But by the time 2018 rolled around, you know, we were 
deep in the the heart of the Trump years. Yeah. And like everybody, just struggling. And I, I told my friend Dan Miller, who is also he's a former Southern Baptist minister, now scholar of religion. I was like, look, we have an inside outside view. Like we lived it. There's a lot of journalists out there who who are great at studying this stuff, academics too, but we lived it. But we also now have this long historical sociological view on it. So why don't we just like, I don't know, let's do it. Let's see if we can explain some stuff to people in a way that might be helpful. And if people listen, great. If not, at least you and I get to hang and talk. And and from there, you know, I think we really found our groove because we realized that as as many of us, including you, if you live it, you have a wealth of information in your body, in your mind, in your <laughs> yeah. all of it. And yes, then you do. <laughs> You know, we had spent all these years with academics who hadn't necessarily lived it, but like, you know, knew all these histories and all of these um, sociological uh, approaches and data and blah, blah, blah. So we put those two together. And now um, I think one of the reasons it's become the thing is honestly because A, it helps people. So much of academic work does not seem to help people. Mm. And that's really the the driver for me. And B, um, it's really important because it continues to be just a huge part of our public square and we need to kind of like figure out what's going on. Yeah, no, I think that's really well put. I, I a hundred percent agree. Um, you, you, you and your co-hosts of the podcast really seem to have a really great blend of that academic side, but also the lived experience. And that experience is so key to, to use certain language that's, that's, that, that's relatable and understandable to so many people, you know? So I, I, I agree with you. I kind of want to kick off this Christian nationalism discussion and really talking about your book, you're preparing for war. First thing is first, I, I how would you define Christian nationalism in a nutshell? I know that, that there are different ways to define it. You know, Samuel Perry ha- has his view. You can Google it. How do you, for the sake of the book and, and how you frame this conversation, how do you frame uh, Christian nationalism as a definition? Yeah. So Christian, I think one thing to say is Christian nationalism is not a synonym. It's not the same thing as evangelicalism or white evangelicalism. And and, and I think one way, if you, if you want to like make a chart in your mind or you want to make a drawing right now, if you draw a big circle and just write Christian nationalism, you could inside that circle, draw another circle and and label that evangelicalism or white evangelicalism. You could draw another circle and, and label it white Catholicism. There's a smaller circle in there that's Latter-day Saints. Um, right. Um, and so that's kind of, that's one thing I think is really good to kind of keep in mind and and have in your mind's eye, you know, Christian nationalism, I think Perry and Whitehead have some really good ways of describing it. It is nostalgic. And so, uh, Christian, white Christian nationalism, at least thinks of the past as the time when the the United States was great. I, I like to think about this as the city on a hill motif. Um, the idea that the United States is a city on a hill. It was, the beaming light of the world and somehow it got, it got bad and, and people who, who weren't meant to be in the city got in and we had to build a wall. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're also apocalyptic. They think that things are going to go bad very soon. And so we need to do something extreme right now to save the country. Okay. So I think Perry and Whitehead are right on with that. And I I talk about that in the book. I'll, I'll give another even more simple metric for Christian nationalism. If you think the country is built for Christians and by Christians, you're a Christian nationalist. And th- that is like a very low bar. So there are people in churches all over America, sweet little old ladies, 50-year-old men who don't seem to be part of a militia or part of the Oath Keepers or part of right. the Black Robe Regiment, or they don't know who Sean Foyt is, right. but they think the country <laughs> is built for Christians 
and built by Christians. They think it's a Christian country that everyone from George Washington to James Madison to Thomas Jefferson had this idea where they were going to build a Christian country. And they don't want to hear anyone say not. They think the 4th of July and church go together. They want the Christian flag and the American flag next to each other in the sanctuary when they sing their worship song. And they think it was built for Christians. And they may not say that. They may not say like, well, yeah, it's built for Christians. Like, you know, everyone else get out. But they may think to themselves, look, if you're a candidate and you're not a Christian, I'm not voting for you. Or if you're if you're not a person of God or a man of the Bible, I'm not sure I trust you. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure how comfortable I am with all these people running around who are Muslim or or non-religious and what, they're going to be mayor and head of the, the, the school board and they're going to be superintendent of my kid's district. And I, I'm getting kind of weirded out. Well, that's Christian nationalism. Sorry, I hate to say it. It is. And so, because you're saying to yourself, culturally, economically, politically, the Christians should really be kind of in charge and everyone else can be here. I just, I just, I just need things to be ordered the right way so that I'm, I'm comfortable and I feel like it's, it's going for me how I need it to. If you want there, you know, if I say, well, Hey, you don't care, you know, we're free, right? We can have a, a, a country of Liberty. Let's take in God. We trust off the money. And you're like, well, I, that's too far. Well, you're a Christian nationalist. I'm sorry. You are. And, and you're like, well, Brad, this is, but you are right. If you think that we should have one nation under God in the pledge, you're you're a Christian nationalist, and and I know some people are listening, and going, "This is this is like uh, a, a very like extreme definition." But here's why I think it's important: is it sheds the spotlight not on Michael Flynn or Doug Mastriano or um, Rob McCoy or Sean Foy. It sheds the spotlight on those very everyday people sitting in churches who during the Trump years got radicalized into a very harmful politics. It sheds the light on the like the run-of-the-mill person who will not go to church unless the American flag is in there. And it says, you're a Christian nationalist, and this is hurtful. It's part of what's happening in this country. And and that's why I use that. To, I, I think it, it sheds light on the, the mundane and the everyday in a way that we need. I have to... Agree with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and right. I would tell you if I didn't, I would ask a different yeah, yeah, question to yeah, follow up. Yeah. But I, I agree with you because I, I think in, in, in um, um, Perry and, and Whitehead's book, um, Taking America Back for God, they kind of give a spectrum is kind of their idea. Yep. You know, yep. uh, ambassadors and uh, there's a whole spectrum of it. Yep. And I, I think from what I've, since I talked to Perry more, um, it seems like, that definition has kind of expanded a little bit because I, what you're saying is right. My people at my old church might not be storming the Capitol building, but they voted for the guy that incited that to happen because he's a good man bringing back godly biblical values. I mean, that, that is the line of thinking. And this is where I think we can both agree our experience really kicks in, right? Like, listen, the academic, the academy might say something here or there, but let me tell you, as someone who is steeped in my area deeply in, in, in interdenominational work in these churches, that is the prevalent cultural, you know, idea is you vote for the person who, who's going to bring God back to America and, more recently in Trump's case, not the man who's the most moral, right? That, that, that changed from, from the Clinton approach of, well, we can't trust a man who would cheat on his wife with the country to, well, you know, we need a a commander in chief, not a pastor in chief. Uh, But the idea is that God is sanctioning, this is God's candidate. And that is absolutely a form of Christian nationalism. Whether those people 
are as aware of what they're swimming in or are, are as knowledgeable as maybe a Michael Flynn is, we can debate that. <laughs> but as far as the impact, it's it's one and one for me. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, and I appreciate the way you put it because um, it, it's really, you know, in the, in the Perry Whitehead spectrum, it's really easy to focus on the extreme high scorers on the Christian nationalist metrics, right? Oh, these people are the extremists. Okay. And yeah. and we can write the articles, we can do the podcasts, we can do the op-eds and the documentaries on them. They're 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 dangerous. We got to, you know, what about as you're saying, all of those folks that were not at the Capitol but are, that voted for Trump twice? What what about those that folks would that would vote for him again? You know what I mean? Um we need to real like they, let me give you a historical example. The KKK of the 1920s had between 3 and 5 million people in it. And some of them were violent extremists. A lot of them got converted at their churches because the KKK was a thoroughly Christian organization who would bring food to the potluck and sing in the choir. And there were so many Americans in South Carolina and Kansas and and uh, Massachusetts who thought, I'm part of the KKK because they love God and they love their country. And we're talking Mayors, presidents, governors, we're also just talking about your run-of-the-mill person. And that is how this happens, right? Is that it's normal. It's 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 accepted. It's There's nothing extraordinary about it. And when there's nothing extraordinary about it, then it's scary. And so I think that's why it's good to talk about Christian nationalism in this sense. Yeah. And I think it's important to to once again remind ourselves how even pre-Trump, the term the Proud Boys was a fringe not household name, right? And whenever it came up, even when Trump first got elected, oh, that's fringe. But now that's a household name. That's a household group. They've done security for Sean Foyt, for Greg Locke. They're firmly cemented in these evangelical spaces. So it's one of those examples, I think, of like, you know, uh, the the frog in the boiling water just turned up over time. But when you look back, I mean, what I remember a, lot, a couple months ago, I watched the, um, uh, who was it, uh, Obama McKinney. Cain debate. And I was like, wow, we've come a long way yeah. in a very short amount of time. And I, I don't think a lot of these evangelicals, many who I still know personally, are 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 even aware of like how hot the room is from even you know four, five, six, seven years ago to the point yeah. where a historical insurrection would occur within four years of Trump being elected. That I'm sure as an academic, that also had to just like go, what the hell is going on here? Well, I, so one of the things that I, I say in the book, you know, is I ask myself <clears throat> what I've been there, right? And so one of the things yeah. that that I think about now when I think of J6 is like, I converted, as I just said, when I was in my teens and I was so zealous and I, I looked up to all these men at the church and I wanted to learn as much as I could from them about God and faith and, and everything else and how to be a, a godly uh, man, how to walk with God. And back in the 90s, there was talk of like, we got to take our country back and the country's lost itself. And Bill Clinton is a terrible example. And we should go get, uh, we should go to Iraq and we should go get Saddam Hussein and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I'll tell you, I didn't hear talk about, about how Bill Clinton was a demon who should be put in jail. I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that, um, you know, Hillary Clinton was demon possessed and should be shot. I didn't hear people saying that. So here's my question. If I convert, not in 1994, 95, if I convert in 2018 and I'm 16 years old, I'm now being brought into a culture that is a boiling hot pot of water, as you just said. 
and I'm not hearing things like walk with God, go pray for the flagpole. I'm hearing we might need to violently take back the country. We might need to take out a uh, 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 electricity grid in our town to prevent drag queen story hour. We might need to take AR-15s to prevent gay people from having brunch. That's the culture you're brought. So when I ask what I be at J6, I'm like, what if I convert it 2018? What if I'm just that zealous guy that's convinced that I have to do something to save my country? What if there's a man in my church who's like, I'll pay for your ticket. We're going to DC, get in. That's what patriots do. Am I going to tell him no? Am I going to be like, nah, I'm I'm, I know the guy from 20 years ago. And that guy would have been like, let's ride. And that yeah. scares me. No, I, I agree. Where do you, do you think this, especially this, this demon language, you know, I've noticed the same thing, you know, it, it's such a, a ne- another level of, of, of rhetoric that ultimately leads to violence. I mean, it's dehumanization yeah. that, and that always leads to violence. I believe, do you think this is coming from the more, more so from the political sphere as, as Trump has, t- you know, really took the, the Republican party over or more from maybe that charismatic theology, because I, I will tell you, going back to your Christian nationalism circle thing, I agree with you. There's a reason why I don't call, I, I, I no longer use the term conservative to describe Christian nationalists. I mean, Russell Moore is a conservative theologian in, 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 in academics, so to speak. He is not a Christian nationalist. There's a separation there, uh, in, in my mind, at least. Um, and I think about even in in the theology, you have like the Doug Wilson type Christian nationalists, mm-hmm. which are more of that R.J. Rush Dooney dominionism f- uh, flavor. But then you have this, what you talk about in your podcast more recently, the new apostolic reformation steeped in, you know, put bluntly more charismatic Pentecostal type theology. And that's where I hear more of the talk of demonic strongholds and spiritual darkness. Mm-hmm. So where do you think this kind of language has come from over the past few years in, in your expertise? That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. So let's let's go back. Um, let's go back to uh, George W. Bush time. All right. So Bill Clinton, uh, sex scandal, Monica Lewinsky, and we all know, and at least we should, some of you are too young to know, but I'll just tell you at the time, uh, it was like, who could, who could lead a nation being this immoral? We can't have this man get rid of it. Right. I mean, it was a moral outcry. And then the idea was that George W. Bush would be the first real Christian president of our lifetime that, you know, Reagan was friendly to the evangelicals, uh, First Bush was really just kind of a wishy-washy Christian Episcopalian. And we all know about Clinton. He's out there doing whatever. George W. Bush converted. He used to be an alcoholic, but God saved him. He reads the Bible. He loves his country and he loves his creator. And there was this sense that he would take the country back to where it should be. And you know what I think happened in those years is it did not scratch the itch because he talked the talk. He went to church. He talked about the Bible, God, Jesus all the time. And the evangelicals were like, I still kind of just, I, you, you know, I thought this was going to do it and it didn't. I thought if I just, if we got the guy, Bible, Texas accent, I just thought it would like, yeah, but it didn't. And then, you know what, you, what happened? Here comes Barack Obama. Hmm. And it was like mixed race. Dad's from another country. Dad's a Muslim. His wife is black. His kids are black. He, uh, you know, is is uh, has a middle name Hussein. Uh, 
while he's president, gay marriage is legalized. I could name a bunch of examples. And I think if you think about that turn of like, we really thought the Christian president would would give us what we were looking for. And then that guy was president. I think the switch goes from, hey, it's the 90s. It's the early 2000s. Let's pray for our country. Let's win our country back through hearts and minds. Let's have revivals. Let's have the Harvest Crusade. Let's have you know mission trips. Let's outvote these folks. You know what I think? Once you get to the Obama years, it's like, that's not going to work. We tried it. We prayed. We had George W. Bush. And you know what happened? We got Barack Obama. So screw it. I'm not voting for Mike Huckabee. I am not voting for Mike Pence or Ted. I want a guy who will hurt and bully and brutalize the people that I think have taken my country. I want them to hurt. I am happiest. My friend Scott Okamoto says that they are happiest when they are full of hate and resentment. So let's get them. I want them to be oppressed and exclude. I don't want them in my space. I don't want them in my life. Go get them. Donald Trump, you're not a Christian. You don't pray. You're divorced. I don't care. You're chosen by God to be the bully we need, as Sam Perry talks about it. And that's where, so here's your question. Why spiritual warfare? Why demonization? Because they're now in a place where they're like, we have to justify the extreme measures. If you're a demon, if you're not human, I am totally justified doing anything possible to get rid of you because it's like there's a monster like Godzilla's climbing on the building. You do anything you can to get rid of you shoot, you use missiles, you use nukes, I don't care because you're a literal monster attacking my country. If I use that language, I can do whatever I want to you and that's actually what I want to do. So let's go. Let's do it. That's what they, that's the mindset. That's that's a really I think thread to pull on. You know, I, I'm 34, so I voted uh, for a I voted like in in the Obama elections, yeah. but I was young. I was you know I was steeped in talk radio my whole life. My dad's a blue collar worker, so you know I I I know that world. And so you yep. you I voted for who you think I would have voted for. Rush Limbaugh, frankly, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, in, in fact, quick side note, Turning Point uh, at America Fest, they gave me a free copy of Rush Limbaugh's by like like. Uh, legacy book. So I'm like, Oh, so Thanks. kind. Thank you. <laughs> Just more research, I guess. But, um, that I say that because Anthea Butler wrote the book, white evangelical racism. Um, and I didn't realize how racist the tea party was yeah. because I was 19 and I'm like, Oh, the tea party is fighting for lower taxes. I had no clue, yeah. but looking back now, reading some of the history, it's like, Oh my God, this white lash term that I never heard of till a few years ago, my own, my own life. It makes so much sense why Trump would have happened once you realize that Barack happened, not for, or President Obama happened, not for four years, but for eight years, right? So like you said, if if the the tactic of the Billy Graham approach ain't going to cut it, uh, time to go to that next level of, let's just go, let's just go. With, with violence, you know, whether yeah. it's verbal violence or it's actual physical violence, storming the Capitol building, trying to hang the vice president to overturn the election. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think, so if you want to tie this to the rise of independent charismatic Christianity, the rise of the new apostolic reformation, why does that become so uh, mainstream? I mean, there's a lot of reasons. I'm not going to reduce it to one, Yeah, but, but they already had an apparatus of spiritual warfare. They had an apparatus that they could just slot in and say spiritual warfare is what we're up against. And then spiritual warfare bleeds into actual warfare, doesn't it? it like physical warfare. And so you, if you already have that apparatus theologically and ritually, 
then you can start to just sort of apply that to a situation that uh, really calls in your mind for uh, actual war. And so I, I think that is that's one connection to this rise of of independent charismatic Christianity and and the New Apostolic Reformation. And what happens when those prayers don't work, right? I mean, I agree that physical violence is inevitable when you de- when, when when you start declaring things like Michael Scott declares bankruptcy in the office, yep. right? And nothing happens. What's the next step? You have you, it's inevitable for things to turn physical when your declarations and you know I, I don't know if you remember when Bethel uh, you know pounded the staff on, on on the floor declaring the end to racism. You know it didn't it didn't work. So what happens now, right? I mean, <laughs> well, so I, here's one here's one way to put out put uh, think about it. So you know you talked about being countercultural, and and I heard that too. We're we're countercultural, right? Yeah. We're in a culture that's against God and and heathen and soul uh, godless so we're going to be these countercultural Christians you know what I hear now from the seven uh you know mountains mandate type stuff and other theologies is not we're going to be countercultural it's we were sent to dominate culture we are here to conquer like think about you I skateboarded I actually I actually oversaw like a teenage Christian uh skating ministry at one point. Like I was, you know, I was fully invested in the like baggy pants, backward hat. Like we're the countercultural teenage Christians. We listen to punk rock and, and we're not your, your mom and dad's uh, generation of evangelicals. And I, it was really easy to mesh the skateboarding and the backwards hat with the like culture doesn't get me because I'm a Christian and I'm good with that. I'd rather be on the outside than in there with you guys. You know what I hear now? I'm here to dominate. I'm going to conquer you. I'm going to just, I am called to be the top of the mountain. And if you get in my way, you better look out because that's what, that's what I'm called to. So you decide you get in my way, you get in God's way. I will destroy you to get to the top of that mountain. That's the shift we're talking about. You see what I'm saying? And, And that's what's, it's, it's, it's different. Yeah, I, the way I phrase it is that you know this is a a, a, a flavor of Christianity that wants to become the empire, not subvert yeah, it. That's right. Um, totally. You know, I mean, totally. That, that, that's the difference for me, and that's why I, I've been navigating this in my own life as someone who still is in the Christian faith in somewhere. Uh, you know, where I, do I think this is a Christian movement? Yes, but do I think it's antichrist in nature as far as what what, what Christ would advocate for? Yes, you know, because it, it, I think that in my perspective at, at this point in my life, there's a pretty clear strain of subversion of empire um, to be that Christ follower while Christian nationalism says, no, 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 we are going to become the empire and then yeah. rule by force from the top and make everyone else submit to these, what would they call a biblical moral law, which depending on which uh, sphere of Christian nationalism you're talking about looks very different. Um, and and it's just very interesting to see that shift because I think I think that's a great point. You know, as someone who grew up in the same space as you did in that kind of culture, that's maybe why I was so perplexed even with Trump of like, wait a second, you're the one who taught me to be radical virgins till I got married and to brag about it, you know? And now you're telling me like, no, the guy in his third marriage, like that's that that's the biblical choice here. It's yeah. like, wait, whoa, whoa, I, I can't yeah. keep track. It's like whiplash, you know? It makes yeah. no sense to me. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, that's a whole different discussion for a different time. So your book, Preparing for War, why did you name it that? Do you feel like at this point, Christian, I'll, I'll phrase it this way. Do you think January 6th is a test run or do you think it was the culmination of Christian nationalism? Is that why you wrote you know, the, the title the way it is or like what's your perspective there? So, you know, the book really covers, uh, I, there's a lot of memoir in there. So there's a lot of stories like you and I are trading right now, personal personal uh, recollections and, and anecdotes. But 
It also spans this history from the 1960s till basically January 6th. And one of the things that I try to show is that, yes, as we've talked about, there's an escalation, there's an acceleration, and Trump is something different, for sure. But there's also a sense of continuity, that Trump was always going to be the kind of crescendo of a movement that said, we have to go to war with American culture because A, American culture has lost God, and B, we are the rightful founders of the country. So we are the rightful founders of the country. Therefore, we should be on top, economic, political, social, cultural, and we're not. So we'll pray, we'll vote. None of that works. Then we go to you know the Trump years and we go to J6. Barry Goldwater, 1964, beginning of the book. He accepts the, the gubernatorial nomination. I'm sorry, the, the, the GOP nomination for president. And he says in his acceptance speech, extremism is a virtue. So he looks at the Republicans in the 60s and is like, you know, we're in this decade that's starting to kind of heat up, isn't it? Civil rights movement, feminine mystique is coming out, women's liberations in the air, immigration reforms a, a year or two away. And he's like, if you want to keep your country, extremism is your tactic. Now, he gets trounced in that election by Lyndon Johnson. But the guys, the foot soldiers in that campaign, they never forgot what he said. Extremism is a virtue. And they built the Council for National Policy. They built the Heritage Foundation. They built the Federalist Society. And then they merged themselves with Falwell, Tim LaHaye, Pat Robertson, Billy Graham. And they thought, if we can win culture war and we can, we can build a political apparatus, we can take back the country. Ronald Reagan, they voted for Ronald Reagan over Jimmy Carter because Ronald Reagan promised them power. Ronald Reagan was a divorced Hollywood actor. Does that sound familiar? Jimmy Carter was a Southern Baptist peanut farmer from rural Georgia who was a military officer and married his high school sweetheart. But they wanted Reagan, the divorced Hollywood actor who supported abortion and whose wife had an astrologist follow him in the White House. Okay? That's not an evangelical. So they were already on the track. If we stay in the 80s, James Dobson, focus on the family, he says that teenagers are and young people are the foot soldiers in the second civil war. That is war language, right? Yeah. That is. And then Paul Weyrich and all these guys in the 90s, you know where they start looking when they realize they don't have the votes? Russia. They're like, if we can mm. look to totalitarian leaders, eventually Orban, Maybe that's our way to get the country back because this voting thing isn't working. This policy thing isn't working. So we may, we may need to martyr democracy in order to resurrect the country we want. And we'll do that because democracy is not the sacred value. Power is. And so mm. preparing for war has been happening for 60 years. And, and J6 is really the result of that. Um, the Russia thing. <laughs> can i just ask you about that and maybe you're you'll be like tim this isn't my thing but i'm gonna ask you anyway i am consistently more and more perplexed by this shift i've seen from you know uh support ukraine to now i mean people who are just blatantly like 
Russia. I mean, you know, Ukraine is is their whatever. You know, they're corrupt. They're you know, uh, it, or it's not pro America to to, ha- to have Zelensky speak. I mean, uh, Benny Johnson, one of the yeah. Turning Point USA contributors, called Zelensky a piece of shit on Twitter. I mean, that's his actual wording. Um, that's that's not just I don't support Ukraine. That is that's that's a next another level of dehumanizing in my mm-hmm. view. And then, yeah. again, to, to point out to the audience, this is another so called. Christian contributor fighting for family values in, in the Bible. Yep. Um, can you speak into any of that? Just yeah. like how we got here? Because my I don't know enough to even comment on it, but I'm I'm confused. So let's go back to again. Uh, this is like the theme of the day. 1999, 2000. Everyone, not everyone, but a lot of a lot of Christians are excited about George W. Bush. But a lot of those like political operatives and the brains behind uh, what we're talking about here they they saw it on they saw the the writing on the wall. And they started taking trips to Russia then. So if you if you do the history, um, you can see that in the 90s, Focus on the Family and the, the World Congress of Families both started kind of reaching out to Russia and creating contacts. And they developed this family values uh, discourse. And the family values discourse was really uh, a way to solidify the heterosexual family against queerness, against mixed race, and against... Uh, you know, divorce and and this kind of stuff. All this stuff that America dealt with uh, in in mass in the '60s, Russia was dealing with in the '90s. So they really built a bond. World Congress of Families, focus on the family, and all of these kind of like big wigs over uh, in Russia in the late '90s, right? Well, then they realize, hey, Americans taught the Russians the family values discourse, and the family values discourse is really helpful. It's hierarchical. It's really a good way to control young people and get them into families rather than revolution and and mm. and and uh, and liberal ideas. And the Russians can teach us something because this guy Vladimir Putin, he's consolidating power, and he's he's really sort of doing things in a way that he gets things done because he doesn't have to wait for elections or Congress, doesn't have to get approval from Supreme Court. He just does it, and that's really helpful. And you know why he does it, according to Putin, at least. Because Russia is a Christian country. The Russian Orthodox Church and Vladimir Putin want to protect the heritage of Russia, the family values of Russia, the spiritual genealogy of Russia. And so we don't need democracy. We need a leader that will protect the family, the Christian heritage, and all of the national borders related to Russia. So when I'm, when I'm Vladimir Putin and I march immigrants out of the city, or if I shoot them in the back... I'm doing it to protect my country and my spiritual heritage because they're Muslims. When I put gay people in jail, I'm doing it to protect family values. All right. So if we get to the Ukraine, uh, Russia invasion of Ukraine, Russia to a lot of people, and this is, y'all are not going to believe me, but if you read the book, I feel like I make a pretty good case. (laughs) Russia is the example of what America could be. A Christian nationalist country with a Christian nationalist leader willing to do anything to protect the spiritual heritage, Christian values, and family values of the nation. You know what Ukraine is? They want to be part of the EU. They're calling for all of this kind of liberalism and pluralism and globalism. Right. They're kind of a window into that whole global order, United Nations, EU coalition. And, you know, if we say yes to them... Are we saying yes to uh, all of those kind of values of cooperation and uh, you know global respect and recognition? I think we are. 
So we're going to side with the nationalist Russia that is invading another country over Ukraine. And I'll just say one more thing. Sorry, I'm long answer, but no, go for it. Back in back in 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 the day, I've been talking about you know 2000, 2003, 2005. There would have been a lot of people in churches being like, Ukraine's important. You know why? Because 78% of Ukrainians are Christian. Now, personally, I do not think you should be uh, you know, advocating for the rights of people because they're Christian or because there's a lot of Christians in that country. That that doesn't yep. make sense to me. Right. But I know I would have heard a lot of people in my church being like, there's a lot of Christians in Ukraine and we got to look out for them. 78% of them are Rus- are Orthodox. They're Eastern Orthodox or Ukrainian Orthodox we should be concerned about our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know what? I I don't hear that now. Do you? Did you hear no. that at, at, at America no. Fest? Did you hear no. anyone worried about the Ukrainian Christians? I didn't. It was a legit I don't. question I asked myself. I'm like, wait, if we're family, if Christ is superior as far as the family, why aren't we talking about the persecuted church in Ukraine right now? I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> the, the, the too long didn't listen or didn't read is this. All it took for white Christian nationalists in America to go from Seeing Russia as the enemy to seeing Russia as the example is for Russia to go from communism to totalitarianism. That's all it mm. took. Mm. This is really important because a lot of people, including myself, woke up to the smell of something stinky when Trump happened. Okay. But I, as I've been learning, uh, thanks to the work of people like yourself and others, um, this is not a new thing. Okay, maybe how it's being expressed might be new for our time. You know, different levels of rhetoric for sure. But there have there has always been, uh, you know, for the past couple of decades now, this thread of this type of perspective that I think a lot of us did not even know the shark infested waters we were swimming in. I mean, had no freaking idea. And so I hear people often tell me, "Where is this coming from? This is new." And more and more, I'm saying, "Well, it's not. It might be new to you." Which is great. I'm glad, but it's it's not new as far as this type. And I hate to use the term, but I'm going to this type of extremism uh, being baked into our politics and to our culture. Do you think that, that that's a fair assessment? Yeah. So I think th- I think what I've tried to do is is say that there is there is both continuity and acceleration. And so it's mm, good. The Trump years accelerated everything. And what happened is is that people stopped speaking in code. And they just said, if we don't act now, we'll lose our country. So forget it. There were there were good people on both sides at Charlottesville. Yes, we need a Muslim ban. Yes, we need to overturn Roe. Yes, we might need to outlaw contraception. Yes, we might need to, um, you know, uh, 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 do anything necessary to protect the country. Okay? Blasphemy laws, Brad. I'm hearing talk yeah. about blasphemy laws being yeah. a legitimate Christian <clears throat> position. So that's that's all accelerated. What I would say is, okay, there's acceleration, but that doesn't mean it's brand new. It's mm. part of a long history. And if and I think you brought up Anthea Butler and, you know, Anthea Butler's work is great for this because if you ask people of color, if you ask black people in this country, if you ask indigenous people in this country, they're going to be like, this has been going on. And a lot of folks didn't care or didn't pay attention, but this is how this country works. This country is a country of Jim Crow, of slavery. It's a country of attempted genocide. It's a country of Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, of Japanese incarceration during World War II, and everything in between. Um, and so there is a deep and long continuity um, between where we are now and the past. It does not mean, however, it doesn't have to be one or the other. 
does not mean, however, that what's happening now is not somehow right uh, accelerated in terms of what's 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 going on with Christian extremism. I would call I would say in, in some cases Christian supremacy, um, and I would also just say threats to democracy. Um, yeah. All of those are present. You know, kind of my last question, I know we have to wrap up and we can talk a lot longer. And I think we're actually hopefully trying to make something in Philadelphia in my in my neighboring city happen soon in person, which I think needs to happen, especially after this conversation. My last question to you is, you know, I mean, I, I struggle with this. I mean, what the hell do we do? How do we resist this without becoming uh, people who dehumanize? How mm-hmm. do we not participate in the cycle of chaos and violence that this movement thrives on while also you know, resisting it and making sure for the sake of all of our neighbors uh, that, 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 that these dreams and goals are not fully realized? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think, think about it as engaging on different levels. So my question is, where are you engaged um, to help protect multiracial pluralistic democracy? So does yeah. that mean, and I'm saying one thing, not everything. I'm saying one thing. Are you involved in local politics, uh, a local con- congressional race? Are you uh, are, are you at school board meetings trying to protect um, curriculum? Are you uh, fighting for the protection of trans youth in your city? Um, is there a way that you can help uh, women gain access to reproductive health care? Whatever you can do the one thing where are you involved where are you involved uh, on a on a what i would call a civic level okay so new, if you need a new year's resolution just say what's one thing i'm going to do this year to, uh, and i and we can all scroll twitter and scroll social media yeah. and get overwhelmed and try to do everything and guess what you'll just go home lie in your bed and put the covers over and just never come out so you can't do it all do one thing pick the thing so if you have any way of supporting those doing other things, then do it. Send them some money, send them some love, whatever you can do. All right. Now, on a personal level, if you have people in your life that are uh, in this world and they want to talk to you about how Biden is a communist or AOC is a serpent or how um, Trump is still president, whatever, you can show up with data and facts and say, here's why you're wrong. And we all know it's going to go bad. You do it on Twitter, you do it on Facebook, you do it at Thanksgiving, it's, it doesn't help. Yeah. Your uncle is not going to change his mind. Your cousin is not going to obvi- like go, wow, thanks for enlightening. <laughs> right. I see it now. Right. I will stop going to that church and right. uh, you know, stop listening to Greg Locke on YouTube. And right. Um, right. Right. I appreciate it. Yes. Here's where I start. Hey, t- you know, tell me about, you know, tell me about what scares you. Um, you think this country's gone to hell. You think that uh, we're totally off track. What makes you scared? What makes you angry? What makes you resentful? What, what is it you resent? Something happened and you're, you're like, I resent that. What was it? Um, what is it you hope for? Like you have kids, you have a future. What would you love to see? Just totally honest. Tell me, like, what would you love to see? Um, what is it that um, makes you worried at night? And if if they will talk about that, and if they can see that you're genuine, you're not trying to get them. You're not making fun of them. As yeah. soon as they say, I'm worried about immigrants. I'm worried about, you know, uh, grooming from my fourth, my kid's fourth grade teacher. And and everything inside of me in those moments is like, ah, <laughs> wants to just, but if they can see that you're willing to listen and you genuinely want to know, then the hope is they might give you some space to say, I'm worried too. 
And I'm not trying to convince you. I'm just telling you, I'm worried about this. My kids, my, my job, my uh, life, my something. I'm angry. I'm hurt. I'm anxious. And then you know what? If you, if you get there, you're, you're a human. You're not a liberal. Yep. You're not a Democrat. You're not a demon. You're a human. And all of a sudden, everything that Sean Foyd and Greg Locke and, and Bill Goddard and anyone else uh, told them to think about you might fade for a minute. And they might just see a human being across there. Not Godzilla, not the QAnon Illuminati, but just a, right. just a person who's also worried, who's also concerned, who's also anxious, who also wants their kid to have a good life. And yeah. then maybe, right, there's a chance to have a conversation that goes beyond the propaganda and you can slowly start to build space to, to make some room. That's an interpersonal level. That's different to me than the civic level. Yeah. And that's how I go about it. I, I have to agree with you. You know, my time at America Fest was uh, both made me more concerned, but also humanized uh, that there are these are human beings. You know, they they have blood in their veins. They are not Christian nationalist robots. You know, they have yep. families. And and the, I have found that the more I'm able to humanize them in my mind, the more I'm willing to engage. Like you said, just to hope try and plant some seeds. I mean, if I can plant a one seed of doubt that takes root, that that's how I got changed from a not affirming, you know, on the path to far right politics Christian, thinking I'm doing God's will. I was changed because my my friend who was gay told me their experience about about what their youth pastor called them, you know, or or my roommate who was black who I was very close to, and, and just nonchalantly tells me how often he gets pulled over. And I go, what? And I believe him because he's a friend of mine. He's not someone out there. Yeah. Those conversations were the beginning that, that led me to change. So I, 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 I appreciate that. I think that, that that's a great note to end on. Um, the book, Friends, I highly recommend it. It's Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Brad, where can people find you? Are you on Twitter, social media? Plug all your channels for us. Yeah. Uh, Straight White JC. Twitter, Instagram, those are the best places to find me. Uh, you can find uh, a lot of info about me at bradonishi.com and uh, our link trees on our Instagram. So I got events coming up. Uh, we're trying to plan this thing in Philly. I'm working on it. And uh, hopefully we're going to find a, a space to uh, to hang out and talk and keep this conversation going. So uh, if you're in Philly or around there, February 11, that's what we're shooting for. We'll see if we can make it work. But uh, yeah, going to be other places talking about the book. So check out my my link tree and um, you'll see where all that is. And the show is Straight White American Jesus. So um, we talk about this stuff three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, it gets a little uh, dorky sometimes, but we try to keep it uh, as accessible as we can. So uh, it's not just a bunch of professors talking to themselves. So anyway, that's my stuff. Yeah. Brad, thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely.